The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Second Peter, chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. The apostle writes, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Years ago, I heard of a Christian radio announcer who set out to do a man-in-the-street poll, and his concern or subject was to ask people randomly about the Christian assurance of heaven. He was asking people, anyone who would stop and talk to him, two questions. One was, do you have any positive assurance that you will go to heaven? And secondly, if the person said that no to that, did that person think such assurance is even possible for anyone to have? Well, he got his share of nasty looks and rude comments and, uh, of course, the cynical jokes from those who always say, well, I'm preferring to go to hell because all my friends will be there. And uh, some people expressed tentative hopes of heaven because they said, well, I've tried to live a good life as best I know how. But the majority response to both questions was actually negative. No, I'm not 100% sure about my eternal destination, and I don't think anyone can be certain about such a matter. Well, there's endless testimony from 
Christians of all periods of history who would speak in a contrary voice. I read once of the life of Sir Michael Faraday, a man who was knighted in Britain for his contributions to early science in the fields of magnetism and electricity. Michael Faraday was a stalwart Christian. And some of his scientific friends were near when he was on his deathbed. And uh, one of them approached him and said, Sir Michael, what speculations do you hold about life after death? And although in a weakened condition, I'm told that Faraday roused himself and said with some force, speculations? Why, I have no speculations about that at all. I am resting upon certainties. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and in my resurrected flesh I will see God. That is the Christian's hope. That is the hope that most of those people in the the on-the-street poll could not answer about. I remind you that last time we were looking at 2 Peter, the first four verses of this chapter, And we particularly landed on the thought in verses 3 and 4 that God, through Christ, has given us everything we need, every possible thing we could need to have eternal life and live a godly life. He has provided it. And we were told there were precious promises of God that if we would only take hold of these, there would be many things that would become our possession. And that we would, in the amazing phrase that Peter used, even participate in the divine nature. Not that we would become God, but God-like gifts and attributes would be ours. The resurrection life of Christ is saying just one. Well, now today we come to verse 5 here. And if you saw the flow of thinking, you see Peter saying, Now you must make an effort to supplement your faith with some other things. Now, the way some people would hear this, they would say, well, God is going to give me everything I need for life and godliness, but I must supplement my faith with this other list of qualities or, or character attributes. So, does this mean God does half the work of salvation and I do the other half? What's being said here? How does this idea that I would supplement something that God has begun ring true. Well, 1 Peter 1.5 is not in any way denying that it is God who is the resource to supply all that is needed for life and godliness. But Peter is saying, once you have ascertained that and understood that and you take his gifts of life-giving, powerful, transforming faith, you must put these gifts to work. You must practice them, seize hold of them, utilize them with zealous action. One commentator put it this way. I thought his illustration was simple, but helpful to me anyway. He said, think of someone who wanted to be a farmer but owns no land. And suddenly he finds that some benefactor has come along and deeded a hundred acres of land to him and wants him to farm it. And in his name, and he owns it free and clear, And he also builds a barn for the man and stocks it with animals, cows and chickens and everything, gives him a tractor, gives him a 
plow, supplies him with seed. He's got everything that a farmer needs. But he's not a farmer. Not until he begins to till the land, plant, harvest, water, weed, care for the animals, do all the things that a farmer does. And I think that's the general idea of where Peter is going here. He's saying all that pertains to our having life in Christ is supplied by God. And yet he looks for us to actively respond and receive these gifts, grasp these gifts, and move forward in spiritual maturity that brings Christian assurance. Now, Peter is trying to encourage us here because there's so many people who do not have their share of assurance about their salvation. Our Westminster Confession of Faith, written in the early 1600s, shows that uh, there's been wisdom about this for a long time among theologians. And the Confession of Faith says this, a very memorable phrase. It says, Infallible assurance of salvation does not belong to the very essence of faith, and a true believer may wait long and contend against many difficulties before he partakes of it. You hear that? It's saying we can be saved in Christ. We can be justified by the grace of God and the righteousness of Christ, and yet not be certain about it in our own minds. And especially this is true with younger people, those who come to faith, perhaps as children, as we heard about children's ministry this morning. They come and they're asked to accept Christ as Savior, confess Him as Lord, and, and the adult who's teaching or leading that ministry celebrates the fact that a child responds and takes Christ as their Savior. But we cannot assume at all, especially with children, that they are immediately assured and they proceed from that point onwards in the full possession of the blessing of knowing that Jesus is certainly their Lord and Savior. In fact, the younger they are when they make such a decision, the more the struggle comes, I think, to be assured and they might be plagued by self-doubt for a long time. If you, today, listening to me, had been faced with that man-on-the-street interview, do you have assurance of salvation? Do you think such assurance is possible? How would you have answered? You don't have to tell me. Tell yourself. Would you have been able to say, yes, I stand secure in the certainty that Christ has made me his own child, that he has died for me, and that his death will give me entrance to eternal life. Do you even believe that that is possible today? I think the capstone of our text, or the keynote of it, is found in verse 10, with this memorable phrase that's there, Second Peter 1.10, My brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. I want to work through that with you in two points today. First of all, asking you to think about what I call the legitimate biblical calling to pursue Christian assurance. We're being called here by Peter, the apostle, and saying you have a legitimate enterprise in which you should pursue, diligently seek Christian assurance. Now, let us be clear that there are people within Christian faith, various denominations and theological viewpoints, 
do not think that that is a legitimate thing for you to seek. In fact, they think you are really better off if you go on groping along, always trying, always coming before God, saying, oh God, be my Savior, be my Lord, but never having a fast assurance that you have reached this assurance of eternal life. The Church of Rome is one great part of Christianity that sees it really as being wrong that you would be assured in such a way. The Council of Trent was Rome's reply to the Reformation. And the Council of Trent has in its many different articles this statement, any believer's confidence of the full pardon of sins in this life is a vain and ungodly confidence. In other words, you should not be confident and assured in your sin because they want you to keep working, keep trying, and always striving, and never perhaps be quite sure in this life. In this life is the important phrase, that you would be sure about salvation. You know, theology makes for strange bedfellows, they say sometimes, and at the other end of what we would think a very opposite Christian group actually thinks the same way. Our honored Amish neighbors similarly usually regard the idea of having assured standing as a presumptuous act of overconfidence with a very similar motive, I think, as with the theology of Rome. Once again, they want you to strive to live a godly life, to please God with your works day by day, with your obedience to the law of God, and so on, and say, if you think you're already, you've already arrived, in other words, you'll stop working. Now, I respect these folks that think this, but I believe that they're not biblical in that idea that assurance is something presumptuous or proud. Second Peter 1.10 raises this issue going back to the subject of our divine election. And it says that we ought to be striving for surety, for assurance about God's original calling of us and electing grace, that he authored salvation for all believers in the mystery act of his own counsel before time began, before you existed. God isn't simply responding to you and saying, well, I'll watch and see what George or Anna do, and, and uh, if they respond to faith in Christ, then I'll call them my elect. No, that's backwards. The Scripture says God from all eternity has known his elect. The why of that is very mysterious to us. It's a great truth. It's, it's one that we can't get underneath completely. We would need God's own mind to get beneath that truth. But the Scripture plainly teaches it. If you would study a chapter like Ephesians 1, you can't miss it in that important chapter. Or all the chapters of Romans 8 through 11 or John 6 and other places. The idea that God has elected by his grace those who will come to salvation. Now, I'm not going to even go into the fact that that's offensive to some people. Uh, Sorry, I don't really care if it's offensive. It's biblical. That's the question you need to ask, not does it offend me, but is God teaching it? And he does teach it, that from all eternity the Lord knows those who are his, 2 Timothy 2 says. The question in 2 Peter 1.10 is, 
How can I know? Am I able to know that I am surely established as one of God's elect people? Peter urges us to to somehow come to a, a more certain standing or knowledge of this. Claiming the assurance of salvation would be an arrogant thing. It would be a proud thing if we were basing it entirely on our works or our deserving it. But since salvation is based on grace and its initiative is grace, the work of God without our deserving it, then it's not proud. If it is God saying, I have called from all eternity a people to be my own, it's really a very humbling thing for you to stand before that and say, how could it possibly be true that I, a sinful man or woman, I know my own nature, I know my own thoughts, I know how sinful I am. How could God have decided to save me if he sees me as I am? It's completely humbling to think that God would have included me or you to consider that God had chosen you. But he did begin this, and if he began it, won't he finish it? Is God like me going about scattering the landscape with all kinds of unfinished acts? I've, un- I've left so many things unfinished in my life, it's, it's a miserable disaster to, th- to think of all the hobbies or all the projects or even relationships where I've made a start with something and have not followed through. But we are looking at God initiating a relationship and a determination to save someone eternally. Will you say that the perfect God will initiate that but then lose enthusiasm for you in in the middle of the project and say, oh, well, you know, I've been working on Nancy here for 50 years and she's not coming along very well. I, I guess we'll just set her aside and forget it. That is not the Bible's God, ladies and gentlemen, I assure you. He who begins a good work in you brings it to completion at the day of Christ. So there's no presumption. There's no great act of pride here. If, if God indeed has elected us to salvation, the question is only, how can we know this? How might we be sure of it and not just be fooling ourselves over this? I think of something written in the very next book of, of the New Testament after Second Peter, First John. 5.13, John writes this. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Not speculate, not brag about something that's an em- empty wish, that you might know that you have eternal life. Same thing Peter's saying here in 1.10 in Second Peter. Romans 11:6 says if this act is by grace it is not of works otherwise grace would not be grace. So the question Peter is raising is my first point is how might we discover growing proofs of some kind in ourselves that assure us that God indeed is saving us. Well, we come to a second point that's in our text. I haven't even gotten to the meat of it yet here. But Second Peter argues for this, that, the, that we would be eager in our pursuit of fruit that establishes our assurance. And ladies and gentlemen, that fruit is not your feelings. It is not 
how you feel about this subject. That's why, as I say, so many children, many children, I've heard so many testimonies of people coming through membership of this church. Literally hundreds of you have told me your testimonies. And there's something about the age of eight, I can tell you. If you, if you want, to tell me, want me to tell you a, an age that more people name than any other age, it's about the age of eight or nine that they came to an awareness or an awakening, or we would say the Holy Spirit was regenerating their heart and showing them a need for Christ. Now, some it's as young as four or five, but others 10, 12, 15. But there's something about eight-year-olds that are just seem to be coming to spiritual awareness. I was eight when the gospel first came through clearly to me. And it was a definite thing. I understood it. I understood what I was responding to. But I found something rather quickly to be true of myself. I found that I was like the man who didn't know whether his girlfriend loved him or not. You know, the proverbial scene where you've got a daisy and you're picking the petal, she loves me, she loves me not, she loves me, she loves me not. And, and uh, how many petals on the daisy determines whether she loves you or doesn't? Because your feelings are saying, well, I don't know what my girlfriend thinks about me. And that's the way I was with my Savior from about age 8 till somewhere, I think, around 17. I was constantly plucking the daisy. I'm a Christian. I'm not a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm not a Christian. Why was it different? Based on how I felt, whether I was in despair, whether I was optimistic, whether my emotions were riding high or low. And I went through that cycle for years with a little bit of despair beginning to grow. On the one hand, I knew I had responded to Christ. On the other hand, people would talk about being sure, and I wasn't so sure. First John, again, 3.21 has this word from John. He says, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. But God himself is greater than our hearts. John seems to be saying... Well, don't just depend on the fact that your own heart, your own emotions uh, make you feel secure. Know that God himself is greater than your heart, greater than your emotions. In fact, you have to learn to talk back to your emotions and almost say, fickle emotions, sit down and be quiet because I can't trust you. You're not telling me what is true. The historic facts of who Jesus is, and what he did on his cross is what we base assurance on. I can't tell you to this day what happened to me when I was 17 exactly. I I must have heard a sermon or something, but I don't know what it was, but I turned a corner, and I would say more humbly, God, the Holy Spirit, turned the corner in my mind and my heart and just made me stop and think this simple thought It doesn't depend on how I feel about it or whether my emotions are high or low. It depends on what God has said and what God has promised and what Jesus Christ has done. And if I have responded as the Scripture calls me to to Christ himself, then I anchor my assurance on him, not how I feel about it. Hebrews 6.19 has a a word that chimes right in with this. As the writer said, we have this hope, the gospel that is, we have this gospel hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, that enters into the 
inner sanctuary where Jesus entered on our behalf. Alongside that is a promise like 2 Corinthians 1.20 that says, all the promises of God have their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ, not in my emotions. Somehow God enabled me to see that. Many years later, I learned that a, a great man, a great theologian, who towers beyond my theological knowledge, had a similar experience. Because John Calvin wrote about it in these words. Here he said, One day there came to me this stunning realization that God really did convert me that first day when I trusted in him. Calvin said, Suddenly I knew that Christ himself was the pledge of certainty I required. You hear that? Christ himself was the pledge of certainty I required. He said, God's promise of grace to every true seeker was the best and firmest guarantee I could ever ask for. Thank you, Mr. Calvin, because he got that absolutely right. I hope as you look now, and and you might think, boy, it's going to take a while to finish this sermon because he's going to go through every attribute of what is written in verses 5 through 8. Well, I'm not. But I want you to see those attributes there, those character gifts from God, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. Peter's saying, as God imparts these things to you, make good on them. Develop them. Think your way through here what God is doing and saying And as these things are presented to you, like the gifts I mentioned before, the farmer being given what he needs to farm, you will use these things, build on these things, and this chain of Christ-like attributes will bear fruit in your life, and you will see that indeed God is working, and there will be a growing, maturing, ripening process of certainty that will, will grow in your life. The little New Testament paraphrase done by a man, J.B. Phillips. My wife and I love Phillips' paraphrase. Uh, He often has such helpful phrases in in, uh, really colorful English. And it's not not always the most accurate to the original language, but uh, it's worth seeing what Phillips has to say on passages. 2 Peter 1.10 has this. He says, Set your minds on endorsing by your conduct the fact that God has called and chosen you. In other words, why is it I have this hunger for Scripture, this ability to control my tongue, this affection for other Christians and willingness to sacrifice? This is God showing that He is at work in me. And as I exercise these things and apply these things, I see the certainty of my salvation growing. My next-door neighbor planted uh, three or four small trees on our property line a couple of years ago, and they've now started to mature. I didn't really pay much attention to them when they were really small, but now they've, they've grown up, and I knew they were some kind of fruit tree, but I, I don't see my neighbor that often, and I never seem to have a chance to ask him, well, what are those trees? I don't recognize them. I thought possibly they were pear trees or something like that. Well, Finally, my wife found out in a conversation with our neighbor there's something I never would have even guessed or looked for. They're persimmon trees. 
Well, I wouldn't know a persimmon tree from a hole in the wall. You know, I have no idea what a persimmon even is, to tell you the truth. But this man wanted to enjoy persimmons, and he planted these trees, and now they have borne that fruit as they're maturing, a unique, recognizable fruit. Well, this is what Peter's saying. The life of a Christian will bear unique and recognizable truth. Cultivate that truth. Cultivate that. Take hold of that. Rejoice in that as God is doing it because these things visible in your life are practical proofs of God's assurance of salvation. Hebrews 6, 11 and 12 says, Show the same diligence to the very end to make your hope secure. Don't be lazy, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what is promised. God is bringing fruit to bear in your life that others can see, the church can see. Take hold of it. Be diligent about it. Be zealous about it. And you'll see certainty gathering and growing. Our text concludes today. And as I said, I'm not going to go through a definition of every one of those character qualities that are there. I want you to just see them as a whole. But as we look at the closing of this passage, verses 10 the last part of verse 10 and into 11, there are two promises made, concluding promises in this text, two things that a Christian can be sure about. First of all, Peter says, as you're diligent to make your calling and election sure and practice these qualities, he says this, four words, you will never fall. He means the ultimate falling away, missing the kingdom of God, missing your heavenly reward. You will not miss it. You will not fall away. Will you stumble sometime? Of course. Will you lose your way temporarily? Yes. Will you possibly even openly rebel against the guidance and word of God? Count on it. You will. But the New Testament teaching is that God's people in Christ cannot ultimately fall away. You cannot be eternally lost. That's part of this assurance. And then this, the last thing that's said in verse 11. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The phrase entrance into the eternal kingdom, the Greek experts say, calls up an image from the Olympic Games, which I remind you began in uh, Peter's time. They were going on in the first century. They weren't invented in the 19th or 20th century. And apparently the language used here is language that describes a victorious runner coming to the finish line and and about to receive his great reward, the rich welcome that's promised here. Uh, That really tickled me because I have a favorite moment in every summer Olympics. I still think that the track and field events, and I don't mean to step on your favorite sport, but it seems to me that the original Olympics were basically track and field. So I always consider that the heart of the Olympic Games and probably revel in what's being done there more than anything else. And I know that one thing that I always want to be sure to see when the Olympics are broadcast is the end of the marathon run. First of all, because it is completely beyond my comprehension how anybody runs 26 miles. We have people in this church who've done it recently. Congrats to a 
a member of our church who ran the Boston Marathon. But inconceivable to me, okay? Half a mile and I'm flat on the ground, dead. Okay? But here's my favorite moment at every summer games. It is watching the marathon, which, of course, you see as a a car with a camera precedes the runners, and you see them agonizing and jousting for position and the best runners moving to the front and so on. But then comes the moment. They've been out in the streets of the city, wherever it is, Los Angeles, Athens, someplace. They're running in these streets and moving along, and then they're coming as they approach the 26th mile to the Olympic Stadium, which, of course, is full of people. 50,000 whatever people waiting. And these runners are going to come through a tunnel and out onto the track and make a circuit of the track and then come to the finish line. And there's always a great electricity when you see that. It's a wonderful spectacle. As the runners emerge out of the tunnel, the crowd begins to roar, and many of them are on their feet, cheering and shouting as the, last, the first runners are moving around the stadium a roar of the crowd welcoming them, urging them on to the finish line. Is that a beautiful picture that Peter has given us of the Christian ending his race? You will be richly provided with an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The saints who have gone before, rising in a shout of triumph as God's elect man or woman comes to the finish line. Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For this is the ending God has planned for you. Father, thank you. We need this kind of encouragement. I'm sure there are those here, Father, who maybe now are in the doldrums of even questioning, do they belong to Christ at all? Because of sin in their life, bad thoughts that uh, haunt them, plague them, temptations that they give into. They're plucking the daisy and saying, God loves me, God loves me not. I pray, O God, that you would teach your people assurance based on the certainty of Jesus Christ and what he has done. Establish us. Help us to run and persevere that we too might experience this great welcome you have prepared for your own. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.